You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Okay, take your copy of God's Word. Does anybody, do you have just a concept of what, uh, of uh, the percentage of likelihood of being hit by lightning? It's one in a million. It's, it's one in a million. I, I had a first cousin that was hit by lightning and she survived. I buried, my first funeral was a little boy who was struck by lightning. He was seven years old. I just led his daddy to the Lord and baptized him. And, um, but that's the only person that I've ever had that I've ever pastored that uh, I, I buried for lightning. It's, it's, the percentage is one in a million that now there are some states, Florida being the leading state, that if you're going to be struck by light, you have a better chance. So if that's been a lifelong desire of yours, you just move down to Florida, you got a better chance of being hit by lightning down there. However, there was a guy from 1942 to 1977, uh, a United States park ranger by the name of Roy Sullivan, who beat the odds. Now, he was a park ranger. He was struck by lightning seven times and survived. Seven times between 1942 and 1977. So the question is always, can lightning strike twice? And yes, it does. And if you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, open it tonight with me to the 20th chapter of Genesis because Abraham... um, is going to fall into the exact same temptation that he did back in Genesis chapter 12. It's hard to believe. Now, I'll tell you up front, you say, well, now you're going to make a lot out of this. I make a lot out of it because uh, it takes up almost an entire chapter of Scripture. But his son, Isaac, is going to do the same cotton-picking thing. Now, we'll get to that eventually, uh, someday, maybe next year, but right now I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 20 and to Abraham where the same tragic, unfortunate experience happens twice. He um, is uh, going to fall into the same sin. He's going to commit the exact same thing that he did back in chapter 12, and it's going to involve his wife. Now, let me just give you a picture. I've got a map, I think, it's going to come up, because you're going to need to know what's going on. This is kind of current. They didn't have Highway 65 in the day of, uh, of Abraham, but you'll, you can see Jerusalem right here. I meant to bring my pointer. Um, you can see Jerusalem right dead in the center. If you go down Jerusalem, all of that is, is a mountain ridge all the way down. It's a It's kind of the spine of the land of Israel. If you go straight down from Jerusalem, you come to Hebron. Just below Hebron is a place that you read about in Genesis called the Oaks of Mamre. Abraham lived there for 15 years. Now, if you go to the west toward the Mediterranean, that blue there is the Mediterranean, you see Gerar. There's the city. It's halfway between Hebron and and Gaza. And so that's where he's going to move and he's going to settle. Now the question is, why did Abraham do this? 
Abraham could have, when he was living just below Hebron, you can see these are very high mountains, and you can walk toward the Dead Sea, and those mountains drop completely straight down. I mean, they go straight down into the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is the lowest place on the earth. It is... 1,400 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on earth. Anyway, so there's this huge drop-off. Abraham could have walked there on occasion with his flocks, looked over to where Sodom and Gomorrah were, and he could have seen the destruction. Do you remember after 9-11, nobody debated, really, Are we going to do something with that area? The whole question was, what do we do with it? But we're going to, we're going to go in there and we're going to change it. We're going to go in there and we're going to build something back because nobody can stand the stomach to look at a place of death and destruction every single day like that. So it might have been that for Abraham, that it was the place, it was the destruction, and he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move where I don't have to look at that. The fact of the matter is, if you look at Jerusalem and Hebron to the, well, it's to our left, that's to the west, from there to the sea, uh, the Mediterranean, it's all green. It's all grass. It's all forest. It's all wooded. Um, so it could have been that he thought that there was better grazing for his sheep over that way, for his flocks, for his herds. So he moves, and that's what's happening if you've got your Bibles open now uh, to chapter 20 of Genesis. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, what he does is when he goes there, I, I, can, I can still show you this since the map is still up. When you get to Gerar and over to Gaza, what you've got is you've got where all the Philistines have lived. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. Um, there's another city, Gath, uh, which I don't see right in there. And there's another one, and I can't remember. It begins with an E, and I can't remember the name of it, were the five great cities of the Philistines. Gerar was not one of the five great cities of the Philistines. It was a Philistine city. And it had a king who was rather famous by the name of Abimelech, and he was famous for this reason. He was a pretty wise and pretty fair and pretty just king. Uh, And so Abraham is going there now into the area of the Philistines, And as he goes there, verse 2, Abraham said of his wife, "Um, she's my sister. Same thing that he did back in Genesis chapter 12 when he went down to Egypt. This is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Um, He thought, well, I'll just, listen, I've got to tell you, this woman has got to be 80 years of age. She must be one fine-looking lady. Uh, because all these kings keep taking her. Uh, So he sends for her. She's going to be part of his harem. And that's exactly what Pharaoh had done back in chapter 12. Pharaoh was going to take her to be a part of his harem. 
Uh, Abimelech thought this would be a good thing to be married to the sister of Abraham because Abraham was considered to be a chieftain. He was essentially what we would call a um, sheik. He had these massive flocks, these massive herds. He was very wealthy. He had uh, tons of herdsmen and servants. Uh, They all moved with him. And so that's why you would get a man like Abimelech who would not go to war with him because obviously he had plenty of men to fight battles. He'd already fought, you remember, the five kings and won those battles. So they wouldn't go to war with him, but they thought this, this, this is a guy we need to have in the family uh, because this will be financially beneficial to us. So Abimelech comes, he gets Sarah, he takes her as his wife, and he goes to bed one night, and God comes to him in a dream. Now, let's listen to this. If you ever have a dream like this, it's going to scare the wits out of you. Where you dream, the voice of God speaks to you, behold, you a dead man. That's what he says right there. You a dead man. You're dead. Now, that would tend to probably wake you up out of a sleep. God says, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's married. Now, Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? He, he's, now, he's laying his case out here. Did he not himself say to me? He, he's saying, listen, this is your guy. Your man, Abraham, said to me, she's my sister. And she herself said, he's my brother. Now he's involved and he's pulled, and you're going to see this in a moment, he's pulled Sarah into this thing. He pulls her into it, and and she says, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He said, God, I did not know. I had no clue. He said, the man himself told me this is my sister. She spoke up and she said, he's my brother. He, He said, I had no idea. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know, in the integrity of your heart, you've done this, and I've also kept you from sinning against me. You ought to underline that. That ought to be something you underline right there. Or if you got a highlighter, you ought to highlight it. I've got it highlighted, I've got it underlined, and I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You see that? Well, um, verse 7 Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet. Now, we know that Abraham was a prophet. How do I know that? Because we're told that right there. He was a prophet. God says he is, or or that he was. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things in their hearing. Now, that's an important statement right there as well. I'll come back to that in, in a few minutes too. And the men were greatly frightened. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? Now, um, you, you've got the whole story right there um, of what Abraham has done and how now this pagan king calls him in front of himself and says, what have you done? I think he calls him in front of his entire court. He's called together all of these 
men, all of his servants, all of these leading people, he's brought together and he says, what have you, how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, now I've got to just stop it. I'm going to ask you a question and we're not on, we're not on television and we're not on radio. I used to, are we on live stream? Okay, so now look, there's no need for you to be terrified. So I'm going to ask you a question here. And the question is this, do you think Abimelech had ever taken another man's wife before? Probably pretty good consensus that he did. He's a, he's a Philistine. He's a Vulcan. I mean, he's a, a what do they call those other, a Romulan? He's... He's one of those kind of things. You know, he's one of these bad guys. I imagine in his lifetime, he had had the wives of many other men. I don't doubt that at all. But look at what he says here. He says, why have you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. In other words, he says, I know something about your God and something about your worship and something about what you're supposed to be believing. I know something about it. Well, he says to Abraham, what have you uh, encountered? Now, this is interesting to me that you have done this thing. What's happened? Listen, he gets Freudian. What's happened in your past? What happened when you were a child that brought this about? Why would you do this? What happened in your past? What happened when you were being potty trained that caused you to do something like this? And Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now you've got the background there. That was very common. That was not an unusual situation. I don't know what else to say about it, but it happened. Verse 13, and it came about when God caused me to wander. Now, do you see this? He does what Adam does back in Genesis chapter 3. He's going to blame God. Adam starts off blaming God, the woman that you gave to me. That's what he does here. Abraham says, when God caused me to wander. Now watch at the unholy covenant he had entered with his wife. From my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Now, in other words, let me give you this in the, in the Mac Brunson translation. If you love me, this is what you will do. Ladies, anytime a man ever says, if you love me, nothing good ever comes after that statement. He says, you're, you're going to enter into a covenant of lying with me. And they had been in that covenant of lying now for all these years. But this is what I want you to see. This is where I'm going to turn to. Now, I've given you the narrative there. I want you to see that even the greatest of God's men and the greatest of God's women can fall into temptation again and again. We can. We do. It's a fact of life. Even the greatest of God's people. So let me show you two things um, with that in mind. I want you to look at the principles that apply when we keep falling into the same temptation. 
What are there? There are five that I'm going to give to you that I'm going to draw out of this text um, about uh, what, what happens to us, what's going on with us uh, when we keep yielding to the temptation, to the same temptation again and again. Number one, understand this. When it comes to Abraham and to Sarah and to the people of God's Old Testament and to us, God does not choose us because we are made of better stuff. I think sometimes we think that. Do y'all remember the Carpenters? Y'all remember the, the, the old singing group, the Carpenters? They're old now. Or, well, she's gone. Uh, he's old. Um, they had a song that they sang years ago that went like this. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. So they sprinkled moon dust in your hair of gold and starlight in your eyes of blue. We all love to think that's what happened when we were made, but it didn't. <laughs> we were not born into rarefied air and angel dust sprinkled all over us. But we get in our mind, I think, a lot of times um, that these folks of the Old Testament are of better stuff than we are. They're not. Abraham was a man just like we are. He was a human just like we are. If there's any goodness in his life, it is a result of the grace of God. Abraham was not chosen by God because Abraham was better than every other pagan in Ur of the Chaldees. He happened to be the one God called, and he was obedient to the call of God on his life. And God took a very pagan man, and he's going to walk him step by step and mold him and shape him over the course of the rest of his life and make into him the man that we come to Scripture, and we think he is made of better stuff than that. For some reason, we think God chooses to use only the good people. Let me let you in on something. There are no good people. He's a mess. Look at what he's doing with his wife here. This is beyond me. I could never in a thousand years or a thousand lifetimes ever think of doing something like this. I would die before I'd let a man come to my wife. You'd have to kill me first. I don't understand the thinking of Abraham where he's more concerned about his life than he was the honor and the dignity of his own wife. He's flawed. He's fallen. Why does God seem to turn to these weak, fallen, flawed, shattered people? Because all God has to work with is weak, flawed, shattered, fallen people. That's all he has to work with. It's not that you've got Abraham and he's better or you've got David. Let's take a look at David. Do you know what David's name means in Hebrew? The root of Dawid literally means to boil. He was a man who was boiling. He had boiling passions. See also Bathsheba. See also Abigail. He got her. Uh, see also a lot of the things that David did. He had boiling passions. Now, some of the passions were good, 
but a lot of the passion in David's life was bad. Why did God choose a guy like David? If he had these boiling passions that would get out of control, because that's the grace of God. It was God's grace. It was not that there was something unusually special about David, but there is something unusually special about our God. Now, let me just bring that home to us. You know, a lot of times we like to think we're the creme de la creme. We are the best of the best. We are we are an upper middle class. We are a white collar. We are an educated. We are a progressive group of people. Let me tell you what you are. You are sinners that are only saved out of an eternal hell because of the blood of a Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all we are. And we have to understand, we can't get far away. My daddy used to tell me, don't get too far from your roots, son. Don't get too far away. You have to remember. Number two, a refusal to trust God lies behind every sin. When you stop and think about it, that's so true. Abraham was 75 when he left Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, and all that time that he left Ur on his way into Canaan, and the 25 years now that he'd been there, listen, he had known nothing but the persistent, consistent um, blessing, protection, care, leading, and guidance of God. That's all he'd ever known. When he left Ur, out, and he left out of there, and he went up to Haran, it was God who guided him, led him, cared for him, provided, blessed him. When he left Haran and he went down into the land of Canaan, it was God who led him and guided him and blessed him and cared for him and protected him. Famine was in the land, but he lived, he ate. God took care of him. God provided for him. God blessed him. He went down into Egypt, chapter 12 of Genesis, and there he lies about Sarah the first time. And even there, when he was lying about his wife, God had put a hedge of protection around her. He wouldn't let Pharaoh get to her. He had put a hedge of protection around Abraham to guard and care for him. And even though they were out of God's will, they go out of there and they're blessed. Listen, Abraham's going to come out of this thing blessed. That's, that just blows my, I have no, I don't know what, I can't tell you. I don't know what to do with that uh, other than our God is exceptionally gracious. He comes out of this whole thing better off financially. And she is. Abimelech's going to give her a thousand pieces of silver. I mean, she's going to get something out of this as well. So I, 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 don't, I don't know what he's thinking about other than the fact this is what I think about Abraham, and it's kind of interesting to me. Abraham, now listen, because I think we're a lot like this. Abraham is able to trust God with the big things. I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to go into the land uh, that I'm going to show you. Okay, God, I can trust you with that. I want you, to, I want you to pick up, and I want you to leave, and I want you to go over here to this place. I, I can do that. I can trust God with my eternal salvation. I can trust God with my eternity. I can trust God with the future. I can trust God, you know, with, with all the big things in life. Now, here's the problem. This is what he couldn't do. He couldn't trust God with the everyday small things. Ah, that's a nice. That's, that's all of us. That's us. We just can't do it. 
We're always running some kind of back-behind-the-scenes schemes to take care of everything because we're not really sure God's going to come through, that God is going to, or God will. We're we're just not sure that. So we're going to take care of all the small stuff ourselves, aren't we? That's what I see in Abraham. You know, he comes here to this, and it's one of those things that not a big picture thing, but he comes here and he thinks, I'm going to have to take care of these these little things myself. And so during the course of the day, we take care of all the little things and we never stop to pray. We never stop to think what God would have us do because we are calling the shots. Now listen, Israel does the same thing. These Hebrews do the same thing. God brings them out. Stop and think about the 10 plagues that God put on Egypt. Those 10 plagues all related to the gods of Egypt. What God was doing was this. He was showing all of Egypt and the Hebrews. In fact, if you want to do, here's some homework. Go home and read the 20th chapter of Ezekiel tonight. And look at how in the 20th chapter of Ezekiel, God told them to put the gods of the Egyptians away, and they wouldn't do it. You want to know why they stayed there for 400 years? Because they were in idolatry for those 400 years. Well, God performs all of these signs to defeat all of these gods of the Egyptians, to show the Egyptians and to show the Hebrews that he's God. He brings them out, the Bible says, with a mighty hand. As he brings them out, what happens? He enriches them. The Egyptians are out there just throwing money at them. Here, take this, get on out of here. They get three days in the wilderness, and what do they do? They have a breakdown. They just have a breakdown. He brought us out here to starve us to death. He can't feed us out here. By stars, he just split the Red Sea. Do you not think he can provide a Big Mac for dinner? I mean, really, honestly, think about this kind of stuff. They get three days into the wilderness out of walking out of a split sea. And all of a sudden, he can't feed us. We're going to die of thirst. And so what does God do? God rains down manna on them for them to eat for 40 years. And he brings water out of a rock. We can trust God with all the big things. It's the everyday things that we really struggle with. Amen. Let me give you the third thing. The third thing is this. Old sins unrepented of reoccur. Now, I don't have any indication. Now, I know that he went back and he built an altar after he got back into the land and he worshiped God. He prayed, but I'm not told anything about what he's doing Uh, I have no indication that Abraham ever went and repented before God. God, I need for you to forgive me for going down there to Egypt. I need for you, I need for you to, Lord, forgive me because I didn't trust you. I, I went down there. I lied about my wife. I'd never read any of that. I don't read that he goes to his wife and he says, wife, you know what I did was wrong. What I did put you in a very bad situation. Um, we made a covenant back 25 years ago, and, um, and I told you to tell everybody, if you love me, you'd tell everybody I'm your brother, and, and that was wrong, and I want us to get over here on our knees, and I'm, I'm going to lead us. I'm going to be the spiritual leader, and I'm going to ask God to forgive us, and I'm going to ask him to help me to be a better spiritual leader for us. I don't ever read that. I don't read that. He doesn't pray. He's got a swamp. Listen, you want to talk about draining a swamp? He's got a swamp down in his heart. 
That stuff is down in there. And if you don't deal with unrepentant sin in your life, you know what it does? It just gets deeper and deeper. The swamp gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Just embeds into your life. And the fact of the matter is, some of us here tonight, we've got some things right now that are deep down in our heart that we have to ask ourselves, have I repented of those things? I preached about this Sunday morning. This whole thing of just feeling bad is not the same thing as repentance. Have I repented of this in my life? Listen, your mate may know about it. Your mate may not know about it. You may have even forgotten about it. But God hasn't, and the Holy Spirit now may be bringing something to your mind, and you may be thinking, you know, there's some things in my life, not somebody else's, you don't do this for somebody else. You do this for you. You can't repent for somebody else. All you can repent for is yourself. If you don't go and get before God, listen, let me tell you what happens. That unrepentant sin down in there, you may have forgotten about it, but at some point, it's going to come back up. And the thing about that is it will often lead you back into the same sin. Let me give you... um, Let me give you the fourth thing, and that is sinning saints can face some painful humiliation. That's what happens when Abimelech calls Abraham. And it's interesting that in verse 8 it says, He arose early, Abimelech, called all his servants, told them all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. And so he calls now Abraham in. And he says, What have you done to me? So now you've got this pagan king looking at God's man. You've got this sinner looking at the man of God. Uh, you have got the man of God looking at the sin. And who's caught right there in the middle but Sarah? And so here's this pagan king and God's man, this sinner and God's prophet over here. And this pagan king looks at him and says, according to what you believe, according to your God and according to your beliefs, what you have done is you've done something to me that is sin. He calls it sin. Abimelech does. He says, you have, called, you have done something to me that is sin. That is wrong. Have you ever had somebody, maybe they didn't do it to you, but you, you've been in a situation where somebody who never darkened the door of a church, who never opened the word of God, but they went off correctly telling somebody who was a Christian how out of the will of God they were and what they were doing was wrong. You ever seen that happen before? I was with a lady. I'll never, I'm, maybe I've told you this before. I was with a lady. I went to a lady's house. She was a Buddhist. And she lived next door to the chairman of my deacons. Now, the chairman of my deacons was a good, godly man. And that woman said, um, I know that my next door neighbor is, is in your church, and he is a good man. He is very kind to us, and he's a wonderful neighbor, and... And what I'm going to say does not apply to him, but I have been in bars and I've seen other men in your church that are deacons in that bar. Now, what, what do you do as a pastor? What do, you, what do you do when you sit like that? You get red in the face. I can tell you what you do. You get red in the face. Your mind is racing and you're thinking, oh, my Lord, have mercy. What do I say? How do I excuse Men who are supposed to be godly living that kind of example in front of the community. 
And I wanted to say, well, ma'am, they won't be deacons by tomorrow. That's what I wanted to say. But what I did say was, ma'am, I'm sorry for that. And that breaks not only my heart, but the heart of God. But it doesn't have anything to do with the decision that you need to make. Ooh, but it was embarrassing. I can tell you, it was embarrassing. I've been there. That's not the only time that's ever happened. You ever want to wonder about this whole thing here, the effect that it has? Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to speculate. All of Abraham's family and all of his herdsmen and servants are there. They hear this. What do they think about Abraham? All these Philistines hear this. Now, listen. They hear this. This is hundreds of years before Goliath. But I almost wonder if the story of Abraham and Abimelech did not pass down through the lore of the Philistines so that when the armies of God gathered up in the valley of Eli and Goliath comes out and he taunts them and he blasphemes our God because he remembers the stories of Abraham and Abimelech. Well, uh, what, about, what about us? You wonder why it's been so hard for us to reach people in India, the Hindus? Because when the British Empire stretched through most of the world, white Christian British soldiers drank so much that teetotaling Hindus said, we want nothing to do with this. You want to know why it's been hard to reach Buddhist in Japan while less than 1% of the population there is Christian? Because when Japan opened up, when the shoguns were done, Um, and Tom Cruise left the country, Um, and it was all over with, and Japan opened up to the West. White Christian businessmen lied and cheated and stole from Japanese businessmen, and they said, we want nothing to do with this. You want to know why we have a hard time in our, in our local community now? Because too much of the world has watched us throw a fit and get mad and flip out and, you know, go nuts and say things we shouldn't say and act like the rest of the world. And the rest of the world looks at us and just says, well, they're no different than anybody else. Reading the Bible can be extremely difficult. Let me give you the last thing before I go to the second point. (laughs) The last thing is this. We ought to pray for those we sin against. I want you to listen to this. Remember what God said to Abimelech? He said, he's a prophet, verse 7. He will pray for you, you will live. So here's Abraham. Abraham gets down here. Now, this is the spiritual growth you want to see. It takes something to do this. So here is Abraham. You, you come away, you know, from this thinking, man, Abraham, uh, boy, you're growing. 
Um, if I learn to do this, I'll be growing. That when I offend somebody, when I sin against somebody, if I'm able to do what Abraham does. Verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. I would love to, why didn't the Holy Spirit put the prayer in here? I would have loved to have heard that, wouldn't you? I, what did he pray? God, I, what I've done is wrong. I didn't trust you. I got out of your will, and I've brought something awful on these people, and I'm asking you to forgive me and for you to heal them and not hold it against them because of my sin. Now, I want to tell you, I've prayed that as a pastor before. I don't, I don't mind. Well, I don't like telling you, but I'm going to tell you, you know, here, let's... In the, in the, here's transparency. I have prayed many times, God, please do not let my sin affect your church. I've prayed that many times. And I suspect, I suspect that's what Abraham prayed here. God, please don't let the sin that I committed be put on the backs of these people. He prayed for them. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. Now, here's the good part. Y'all depressed enough now? Here's the good thing. It's this. I want you to look at God's relationship with us, even though we go back uh, to the same temptation, to the same, ten, uh, to the same sin. Now, there are two things that, that I want you to see. One is this. is God's invisible intervention. Now, go back to verse 6. God said to Abimelech in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart uh, you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. That is what you call the prevenient grace of God. Did y'all call it that at DTS or the common grace? I think it's prevenient grace. Uh, the prevenient grace of God. Old theologians used to talk about that. Not, no, nobody today really talks about it. It is the grace of God that keeps you from sin. It's the grace of God that puts a hedge around you. And let me tell you, have you ever gone to do something before that you know was out of God's will and it was sin in your life and you went to do it, and something happened, and it diverted you from doing that, that's the provenient grace of God. L let me tell you, it was not a coincidence. It wasn't a happenstance. You need to bow your head and say, thank you, God, that you did not let that happen, but you intervened in my life. Now, here's what we don't like to think about. Let me give you one better in a day of social media. Have you ever stopped to think about the sins that you have committed that God has not allowed to be made known publicly? Unless you tell it on Twitter, say God's prevenient sin. Is, is God not great? Is God not good? That, that through my life, I don't even know the sins that he's kept me from, and the sins that I have committed, how he's kept them covered. Well, let me give you the last part of this, and it's this. God's grace lived out through all his life. Now here, let me, let me just show you something here. If you go to the New Testament, the whole of the fourth chapter of Romans is Abraham. Half the book of Galatians is Abraham, 
And at least a third, if not a little more, of Hebrews 11 is Abraham. Now, this is the goodness of God. Never will you read in the word of God about Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith, and he looked for a city that was not built with hands. And oh, by the way, back in the 20th and the 12th chapter of Genesis, that guy lied about his wife and put her in a very bad situation. You never read that anymore in the Word of God. God closes the book on it. Listen, why are y'all so quiet? And I'll be honest with you. If y'all were church of God, y'all would be hooting and hollering right now. Because you know why? That is good stuff. That when God forgives your sin, he closes the book on it. And he doesn't dredge it up and dredge it up and dredge it up. If you remember your sin after you have asked Jesus Christ to forgive you, that's either you thinking about it or it's the devil bringing it up because I can tell you this, God doesn't bring your past sins up once they're under the blood. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.